For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Every one of us from time to time have questions that are asked with selfish motives. Here in Matthew 18, we see Jesus correcting his disciples on one of these very questions. He answers their question by using a child to point out their lack of humility. Now let's join Pastor Carlin with a message entitled, A Question That Needs Correction. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew Chapter 18, and our text this morning will be Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. And while you're making your way there in your Bibles, I'll open us up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord for His grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we just uh, come here with, with open hearts, Lord. We just sit humbly at Your feet, and we long to be taught by your word, Lord. Help us to receive your word this morning, God. We know that this is not just the words of man, but this is completely your words, divinely inspired by men who were carried along by your spirit. Didn't originate in man, it originated with you. You've given us the meaning, you've preserved and protected and inspired your word, Lord God, and we have it here thousands of years later before us today, God. Would you just guide our study, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have a question for you this morning, and we're going to talk about questions. What do you think some of the 101 most interesting questions of all time would be? Who do you say that I am? Great biblical answer. I like that. <laughs> Bonus points right there. Okay, well, we'll step back from that for a second. What do you think the world would think the top 101 questions of all time would be? What are some of the questions? I mean, think about this. Of course, there's the uh, philosophical questions. Why are we here? Where did we come from? Is God real? You know, am I real? People ask that. Okay. Well, the BBC magazine actually did a study, and they, in February 2009, somehow they came up with 101 of the most all-time important questions of all time, according to 2009. So this is BBC Magazine. Let's look at some of the responses. One of the questions that uh, apparently people ask is, can you be allergic to water? <laughs> That's a question. That made, I have never thought that in my life. And that made the magazine. I couldn't believe it. 101 questions of all time. Can you be allergic to water? The answer is no, by the way. In case you're now wondering that, we opened up a door to something. <laughs> another question. Here's another question. How come spiders don't get stuck in their own web? Scientific question, right? Makes sense. They got little tiny feet. How do they do that? The flies get stuck in there and they don't. Uh, there's a big long explanation for that. I'll spare you. Uh, here's another scientific question Where does space begin exactly? Actually, science doesn't have an answer for that yet. They know that it does because it gradually uh, dissipates into space, our atmosphere. Uh, so there's some general legal definitions of how many miles up and out uh, you are before you're actually in space. But people have wondered that. Where, where, where is the line where it's space and the not space? Uh, here's another question. Uh, will cheese give you nightmares? 101 questions. Will cheese give you nightmares? I'm, that's in there. I have never thought that in my entire life. 
And so I'm curious, just by a show of hands, since we are doing questions, who has ever heard or thought that cheese gives you nightmares? I'm just curious. All right, thank you. There's one, two, all right. Well, the answer is no. Apparently, it's a popular question, so you're quite more popular than I am because I had no idea that that was even a possibility. Uh, so, and, and uh, another interesting one is, uh, why do humans laugh when they're tickled? You know, this is a really fascinating thing. They actually did a study on this because it's not a natural thing. And, and they, they've done research uh, not only on humans, but on animals. And they, they see that when you go after a vulnerable part of them, they naturally withdraw. And for some reason, human beings uh, associate laughter with that. And they think it's because they understand that it's a form of joking. And so they tend to laugh with it. Very interesting. And another side note, you can't tickle yourself no matter how hard you try. So, and thank you all for not trying that. I don't say this in kids' ministry, by the way. I don't set them up like this. It's not, it's not that easy. I only say this with adults because I know you probably won't do it. All right, and the last question, here's, a, here's one last question you just hit me here. Is talking to yourself a sign that you're crazy? And the answer is no. Isn't that great? I was so, yeah. Wow, we made that one. I got to tell you, I was so relieved when I heard that. I was like, oh, no. People think that? Okay. Well, those are some examples of some, some, some funny questions, some questions that are, uh, you know, just on people's minds. There's a lot of questions on people's minds, and questions are really how we learn. They're how we understand something. We long to be taught. We long to gain more understanding. Uh, and it's great to ask questions, but there are times that we can ask questions with the wrong motives or the wrong intentions. We can ask questions out of pride. We can ask questions out of selfishness. Uh, we can even ask questions trying to justify ourselves. An example of that would be, well, what am I supposed to do? Let people walk all over me? That's a rhetorical question, right? You're justifying your action. And so today in our text, we're going to see how the disciples asked Jesus a question. And Jesus saw this question as a question that needed correction. So let's look at our text. Matthew 18, starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That's where we'll uh, stop for this morning. And there's three principles I see here. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down. First principle, number one, is become. Number two, or, sorry, number one is come. Number two is become. And number three is welcome. And we'll understand that more as we walk through the text. So let's look at verse one. It says, at this time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the first part of that verse, if we look at it there, it says, at this time, and it's important always when you're looking at scripture to understand what's the context, at what time. And so here's a little bit of a background at what had been going on. Well, in the chapter earlier, here's what had happened. Jesus had just been transfigured on top of a high mountain. He took Peter, he took James and John up with him. 
Uh, They were exhausted, apparently from the hike or from just general tiredness. They had fallen asleep. They wake up and they see Jesus in his glory. And Peter talks about this in the book of Peter. And he says, we didn't just make up uh, cleverly invented stories. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his glory on that mountain. And they saw this. They see Jesus transfigured his glory. And they see him for who he really is. The inside came out. They see that. And not only that, a voice calls out from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone until he is risen from the dead. And they come down the mountain and join the other disciples. Uh, Jesus casts out a demon of a man that was uh, suffering and, and falling uh, a lot. He was uh, demon-possessed. And the disciples were unable to cast out this demon. And they didn't understand why. And Jesus cast him out. And the disciples afterwards were, were questioning why. Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said, well, because of the littleness of your faith. And then he goes on to describe, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Let me tell you, mustard seeds are really small. Very, very small. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, he says. So really he's correcting them and saying, you don't even have faith the size of a mustard seed. And uh, after that, he instructs them with these words. He says, let these words sink into your ears. Very important whenever the Son of God says that. He says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will raise three days later, Mark 9, 31. You know, many times Jesus predicted his own death, and he wasn't the first one to do it. We know that uh, he did it through scripture hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, predicting uh, that one day... Uh, when, he was, when God was giving the curse to the serpent, he said, one day, born of this woman will come someone and he will crush your head. It will be a he, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel, but he will destroy what you have done. So from the beginning of scripture, we see the gospel coming forth. And it's hard because uh, God would give his people hints all throughout the ages. He was giving them all these hints and saying, look, here's, what the, here's something about the Messiah you need to know. He told them where the Messiah would be born. He told them what family line he would come from. Uh, He even told them, if you get really technical in the book of Daniel, he told them what year he would die, 33 AD, 483 years later from Daniel's prophecy. Very incredible. But the problem was, is that along with these prophecies were prophecies of the coming kingdom, the second coming of Christ that we look forward to today. And that's where he comes and establishes his kingdom And we can't wait for that day. And really, that's the day that they were excited for. And they mistakenly thought that both days were the same, not understanding that Jesus Christ had to come and be a sacrificial lamb for our sins first. He had to come humbly before he came in his glory and his might. He had to come and save the world before he could come and and rule over those he had saved. And so, Uh, He's revealing this to the disciples, but Scripture even says they didn't understand. They didn't get it at all. They heard the words, and it said they were grieved. They were deeply grieved. In the Gospel of Matthew 17, it says they they heard him. They didn't understand it quite, but it made them sad. And they make the trip back from the Mount of Transfiguration. They make the trip back to Capernaum. 
And as they're making the trip back, we get the impression from Scripture that the disciples are clumped together walking, and Jesus is walking separate from them, either in front of them or behind them. Now, we know what was probably on Jesus' mind. He's thinking of what's coming up. The Son of God, the perfect, spotless uh, uh, God himself, is going to take on the sins of the world, having never known sin. I mean, this is the God who's eternal, never was created, always was, always is, always will be. Uh, this is God, and he's gonna become sin, something he had never, ever done, something that was really his mortal enemy, but he was gonna do that because us as his enemies who are sinners, we needed a price, we needed to have our price paid, and that was paid through Christ Jesus alone. He was the only one who could do that. So he's, he's thinking this over, he's praying to the Father, and let's see what the disciples were talking about here, because that's important, and that leads into our story. It says, on the way back to Capernaum, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. So obviously there's two things going on here, right? Same road back. Uh, one group of people are arguing and fighting about which one of them is the best, and Christ is getting ready to die on the cross for sinners. So as you can see, uh, it's definitely two different uh, roads of thought there. I've got a picture of Capernaum here. I want to show you this because we traveled here in Israel. It's always important to see what we're talking about in the Bible because these places exist. So this is uh, Jerusalem. Correction, this is Israel. This is Jerusalem down here where the temple is. This is Capernaum right up here at the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum is this fishing town. I've got an aerial shot of this. This is the view of Capernaum looking out to the Sea of Galilee here. This is Capernaum. It still exists. It's still there. These are all the ruins, uh, all the homes they made uh, out of stone, thousands of years old. This is a synagogue here. I've got a close-up of that. This synagogue had been rebuilt, but the foundations were from the time of Jesus. And this was the place they believed that Jesus taught, because the scripture says that he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. Capernaum was also the city, if you recall, uh, where they lowered the paralytic through the roof. And Jesus healed them. It's where uh, they believe Peter lived because Peter's mother-in-law was in Capernaum and, and uh, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And it was really uh, looked at as, as the home base of Jesus as he did his ministry in that region. So they're coming back to Capernaum and it says in Luke that Jesus knew what they were thinking because he knew their heart. And as they arrived back in the house, he asked them what they were talking about. And we know from uh, the Gospel of Mark that it says they were quiet at first. They kind of were ashamed. They realized, well, yeah, that probably wasn't a, a good thing to be discussing. But that leads us into our verse one. So let's look at verse one. here. So at that time and at that hour really is what that's saying here. Uh, after all these things have happened, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we need to understand here that it's not a sin to ask Jesus questions. It's not a sin to question God on something. That is okay. In fact, we're instructed in Scripture to ask, to seek, to knock. The Bible says, ask and it'll be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. And God wants us to seek him out in his word. He wants us uh, to find answers. And let me tell you, there are so many answers in the word of God. In fact, 2 Peter 1.3 says that, that by his divine power, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. 
through him who has called us. We have everything we need in God's eyes, and he knows way more than us. We have everything we need to live this life. We have everything we need uh, to be godly. We have everything we need to know to come to Christ. And one of the favorite things that I like to do in kids' ministry is after we uh, teach a lesson is I ask them. I say, okay, now we're gonna ask questions. I might have mentioned this to you before. But I say, now we're gonna ask some questions. Uh, you guys ask me a question about uh, what we've learned today about the Bible or about God, and this is the rules, you know, they're serious questions, you know, so we don't have any jokes and stuff, and we wanna be polite with other people, but you would be amazed at the questions these kids asked. It's one of my favorite times, actually. As much, I love it as much as I love teaching the study because I can see what they've learned, I can see what they're thinking about, and you'd just be shocked. And what you see is you see a sincerity from them. They wanna know. Kids wanna know about God. They wanna know about Jesus, uh, they love him. They want to know about this love he has for them and creating them. And uh, the contrast to that is typically comes with adults, I find. I see it in my own self. You know, we, we tend to be more cynical or have alternate motives when we're asking questions. And uh, they tend to be a little bit more selfish. Uh, and that's what we see here with the, with the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not really a sincere question. I mean, they sincerely wanted to know, but it was very sincerely selfish. Okay, so uh, who's the greatest? Who's the best? That is such an adult question. I'm sorry, but it's true. That is what, the way adults think. You know, kids aren't running the Olympics. They're not running Super Bowl games, right? They're not, they're not doing that to see who's the best. They want to get out there and play. In general, they don't care too much. You know, little kids, they're just out there to play for the sake of the game. They, like the, they just enjoy it. Uh, but we tend to have this thing where we want to know who's best, you know, who's best at that game, who's best at this or that, and is that us? And we want it to be, right? That's the, the pride that we experience. So we see here that they asked a question that needed correction from the Lord. So when you do come to the Lord and ask a question, remember that God in his love, uh, he gives us answers. But many times, especially if you come to him with the wrong motives, many times that will include correction, especially from God's word. And he does that because he loves us. And this is how God chose to correct them, and this will lead us into our point. So point number one, come. So if we look at verse two, and I'll read that to you. It says, he called the little child and had him stand among them. And so the scene here is described better in the same account in the Gospel of Mark in this particular area. It says that they had just come home you know, they're, they're in Capernaum at a house, uh, and there's a little child there, and Jesus goes, and he sits down, and he calls his disciples over to him after he hears what they were talking about, and he calls a little child over to him. And so that's the setting that this is all going on. It's inside of a home. You know, this could have been, it's not mentioned who this child was. We know it was a boy, a little boy, uh, but it could have been a relative of one of the disciples. It's definitely one of their friends. Somehow they, they knew who this was, and I want you to imagine this scene because this is what's important in the first part of correction here. So I want you to imagine being this little boy in this house. Now, all of a sudden, the door opens, if there is a door, probably was back then. I don't know, maybe there was a, a hanging, you know, leather piece of something. But something opens, all right, and in come 12 burly guys, all right, they're pretty serious guys. Uh, one of them was Judas Iscariot, by the way. Two of them 
Uh, James and John were called the sons of thunder, nicknamed by the Lord. Later, you know, we see later accounts where they're asking if, you know, should we call down fire from heaven here, Lord? I mean, like, they were pretty serious guys, right? Okay. Um, and lastly, you know, and just not to mention Peter. Peter comes in. Peter, Peter's a pretty serious dude, you know? So they all come in. And remember, this is after a long journey. So they're tired. Probably don't smell too nice. Uh, they've been arguing, the Bible says, all right, so they're probably not in a really good mood, even after all this incredible stuff that's happened. Uh, uh, and, um, and so they come in, and it, we get the impression the kid kind of is, is giving them distance. He gets the picture. He's like, okay, I'm not going to ask him how their day with Jesus was today, right? It's not one of those days when they come back and go, guess what happened? Guess, oh man, we were casting out demons of this guy, you know, his arm grows back, it was crazy. You know, it's not one of those days. And he could, he could sense that. So he's kind of off to himself. The disciples are kind of, they're down from hearing what Jesus said, but didn't understand it. They've been arguing. They're just at the end of everything. And uh, they've traveled somewhere between 30 and 170 miles. And that's based off of the two possible locations for the uh, transfiguration where that happened. All it says in scriptures, that was a high mountain. So there's two possible areas. So either way, 30 or 170. If it's 30, might as well be 170. That's a long walk. So that's where it was. Okay, so the kids are giving them space. You know, I remember this one time when I was working, uh, and I had uh, my boss, really neat guy, uh, you know, but, and I was just a young kid. I remember coming into work to relieve him, you know, and he's like, yeah, he's like, I, I just had my fishing championship yesterday, you know? So anyway, I'm going to go home, and I'm like, oh, how'd it go? And he's like, how do you think it went? I would have told you if it went really good. I didn't catch anything. I lost, you know? So I started thinking, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have said anything. You know, mental note for next time. Uh, so this child is probably wiser than I was at that point. Uh, and, and here's what happens. They're arguing. Jesus, Jesus sits down, all right? They're tired. And Jesus calls the disciples over to himself. And, this is a, and those houses were small, I mean, the way they built those houses is they build the four corners, and when uh, people got married, they would just add another wall in between, and that was their side, and this was your side, and they'd split that in half when they had kids. I mean, these were tight quarters. It was a tight spot. Everybody knew everybody, and uh, so Jesus sits down and calls the 12 over to them, and then he calls the little boy over to himself. So imagine that, that scene. Your little boy, here's these, these men, and you go over there, and you know, they're probably not too pleasant or happy. And Jesus has you stand next to them and you're looking at them. And they're not probably too happy at this point. And they're looking at Jesus and you. And Jesus is gonna proceed to correct them on where they were wrong. And he's gonna use you as the example. Wow. Talk about being intimidated as a child. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I remember, maybe you had a dad like this. I remember... Uh, a couple times with my father when uh, he would have uh, Bible studies or friends over and we, you know, we were told to give him space, but at some point couldn't stand it any longer, just run in and just go and just go and you know, kind of sit on his lap as a young kid. And they were all talking, had no idea what they were talking about. But I remember going, man, these guys are all so old, I thought at that point. <laughs> now I'm that age. <laughs> so I'm like, man, these guys are just, I just thought, man, they're so smart. They're men. They're, I mean, there is, in my mind, there is as famous as anybody on TV. You know, these guys were amazing. But, you know, I was there with my father. I was accepted, you know. I was uh, comforted by him. And this is what Jesus does to this child. Mark says Jesus calls him over to himself, and he takes the child into his arms. 
And so he's holding the child like this, and he's talking to his disciples. And you know what? Things are a lot less intimidating when you have the arms of Jesus around you. And it doesn't matter at that point that all these men are looking at you. It doesn't matter at that point uh, anything at that point. It, do, it doesn't matter uh, even that these men are, you know, really, they're, they're God-fearing men, you know? Uh, yeah, they, they came from rough backgrounds, but they, they're God-fearing men, but even then they could be intimidating, but, but that doesn't even bother him. And when they look towards you, they're seeing Christ. They're seeing Christ. And that's the definition of being an example. And this whole thing reminds me of the time in the Old Testament uh, in 1 Samuel 16, where God sends Samuel to pick out a king. And he goes and he sees all the sons of Jesse, and they come out one by one. And he's like, oh, this is the guy. This is the guy. He's, you know, buff, strong. You know, oh, that, he'll make a great king. God goes, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. All the way through them all, and they're all standing there. He has to send for their other little son, who's out in the field, David, who becomes king. God goes, that's the one. He brings him in. You can imagine what his brothers probably, the look they gave him, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, little David, he's going to be king? <laughs> Whatever. I'm out, I'm out of this religion, right? Whatever it was. You know what? But here's the encouragement. David wrote Psalms. Over half the Psalms are written by King David. Look at Psalm 91 too. Just look at how the psalmist writes this. Actually, Psalm, Psalm 91, 1 through 4. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. David found that. Psalmist found that. People. That's what they find when they come to Christ. You see, Christ called him, the little child, and he came to him. Christ wasn't a big, scary guy, you know? There was nothing, it says, uh, in his appearance that would be naturally appealing and drew people to himself, but there was something in his nature that drew that child to himself, something humble and gentle and meek, uh, something caring. Kids know when you care about them. They can tell when you're genuinely interested in what they're interested in and how their life is, and what's going on in their life. Uh, they understand we're busy. They understand that uh, we've got these big responsibilities, and we have to drive cars and pay taxes. They don't know what that means, but they understand <laughs> that we do those things. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 33, 27, look at this. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. God covers you if you have come to him. He wraps you in his arms, and you're a light to the world. And when you look at the world, you see the faces, but you have the peace because his arms are around you. And when the world looks at you, they see Christ. And that is the goal. That's who we're representing. Well, let's look at verse 3 and see specifically how Christ corrected them. This moves us to our second point. We talked about coming to Christ, naturally drawn to him, right? Kids are naturally drawn to him. We have to come to Christ first. That's the first part. Number two, we have to become. Let's see what Christ says. Verse three, his correction. 
And he, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a big deal. That's more than a correction like, hey, I want to talk about your tone earlier. I understand it's been a long trip, okay? <laughs> but you could have been a little bit nicer, you know? Why did you have to trip John on the way out of wherever? That wasn't funny. You know, he's hurt. He's in the corner crying, right? That's not what this was. This is, his, okay, hold on a second, guys, he's saying. Unless you change, that word in Greek means uh, turn or be converted or change, and it's given, uh, it's given as a metaphor in this case. Unless you change and become like little kids, you're not even going to heaven. That's a big deal. So we should look at that and go, okay, wow, this is a big deal. Let's look at this and understand this. And so uh, two words stand out. Number one, like. If you look there, it says, become like little children. Like means that it's a metaphor. He's not telling us to become little kids. All right? He's saying like, that means similar, analogous, not completely the same, but at least one similar trait. And he's going to explain further what that means. And then also he says this. He says, he says like little children. He didn't say like this child. So it's not like you have Wonder Boy sitting here and you're like, you got to be like this you know, perfect child who apparently existed back then. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying uh, become like little children. He's saying in general, this is something that little children have. And he'll explain it in a moment. So what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean, number one, that you're going to be going backwards in your growth or knowledge of God. That's not what he wants you to do. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 says this. It says, in fact, and, and the writer of Hebrews is correcting uh, these, these people and saying, look, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God, God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And he's, he's kind of, you know, frustrated by that. And so that's not what this mean, is meaning by little kids, that we should just abandon all growth we've had in the Lord, abandon all knowledge we've had in the Lord. No, you hold on to that. Second thing it's not meaning is quitting our jobs. Right, as guys, it's not quitting our jobs so we can go play all day with our friends. You know, hey, Jesus said be like kids. And that's what I remember doing as a child. Never wore shoes, so the shoes are going off. And it's gonna be summer for the rest of my life. And that's not what Christ is saying. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 corrects this. And Paul says this, he said, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling, keyword, to work shall not eat. So as men, we are supposed to work. That's our job. We're supposed to go look for work. If we don't have work, we're supposed to work and do something. That is what God has made us to do so we can provide for ourselves and our families. And lastly, what this is not saying is that we shouldn't be acting childish. This is not saying that we should act childish, right? Uh, it's not a license to say, okay, you know, we can be a complete goofball and we need to be serious. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul's giving an example, and this is what he says here. He says, look, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And maybe some of you can think back, maybe for some of you it's a little bit longer, you think back to when you were a child and think of some of the ways you talked as a child, right? Think of how you thought as a child and how you reasoned as a child. I remember one time I was thinking about this. I remember one time, I think I was five or six years old. I may not have even started school yet. And I remember uh, I had these really cool kid-safe plastic scissors. And uh, there is this giant window we had in our, our, the front of our house, and there was a screen. And the screen had this little tear in it. And I remember looking at it and sticking my scissors in it 
and I realized I could cut shapes in the screen. It was like right there for me. It was so easy. And I cut this, and I just remember going like, look what I did, and it's hanging down, you know? And so I remember it being a big deal. It wasn't as easy. I mean, we were going to Home Depot. We had to drive like two different places, Yardbirds, Home Depot, driving all over, try to find the right size screen, you know? And I think the reasoning was, well, because the hole was there. That's why I cut it, right? I mean, that's how I thought back then at six years old. Uh, and then I think, it's so funny, I think I did it again after we put the new one in, <laughs> which is, I feel so bad for my parents. I think I did it a second time. Should I should ask him. Yeah, I was 18, right. <laughs> Yeah. I think I did it again. And what's so funny about that is like the, my reasoning the second time, there was no hold there, but that was my reasoning. Well, there was no hold there. You know, I mean, how kids think sometimes is not exactly correct. So Paul's thinking, saying, look, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I even reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. All right, so there's definitely aspects of childhood that we're supposed to leave behind and move on, right, and grow. All right, so Christ wants us to become, he says, become like this little child. So in what way, and this is going to get answered in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's one trait pointed out there, humbleness. Humbleness, like this child. I want you to become like little children. And you know in what way I want you to become like little children? In their humbleness. Kids are naturally humble. I mean, they, they get a lot, honestly, from us. They get some bad examples uh, of pride. Uh, and kids can have different personalities, but in general, kids are pretty humble. They get it. Kids understand that they need help. They understand they're not strong enough. They understand there's lots of stuff they can't do. They have a desire to do it. They want to do it. It makes them feel important when they do it. But they understand that, that that's just not who they are right now. Now, that word humbleness in Greek means, uh, tapa, uh, is tapaneo, and it means to be brought low, to lower yourself. Uh, it's the exact opposite of pride or haughtiness. It's, it's just a modest opinion of oneself. Webster even des uh, describes Humbleness as, you know, not being proud and not thinking that you're better than someone else. That's humbleness. And that flies in the face of what the disciples were doing, right? They were uh, having this big conversation about which one of us is best. We have to know right now. You know, if we can ask you one question, Jesus, this is what it is. Right here, you pick one. Right? That's what's going on. But kids aren't like that, okay? Kids are humble. We work with little kids, and they are so humble. They're so, they just like to play, right? And uh, they are naturally attracted because of the realization that, that there's things that they can't do. They're naturally attracted to the Lord, and this is why. You see, when, when they see an all-powerful God who promises never to leave them or forsake them, to be their ever-present help in time of need, and he's kind even towards sinners, they, they just realize their need. They're like, yeah, that's, that's who I need. That's who I need. Kids are naturally drawn to Jesus because of their humbleness. But it's harder for adults because adults, we, we tend to have more pride that just comes at some point in life. It's a part of, of the fall that just attaches to us and grows and grows and grows and we have to get called on it and corrected on it and only the Holy Spirit can shut that thing off. 
because it is intense. And uh, we, you know, we see ourselves as self-sufficient. We reach a certain age, we go, yeah, I can drive, I can fly, I can do all these things, everything's great, and so I don't need anyone. And so often we overlook our need for a savior, our greatest need. And so as we look back at that question about who's the best, we need to make a differentiation real quick. You see, as kids just want to play the game, and as kids just enjoy, for the sake of fun, getting together with other friends, and as long as they're included, they're down with it. Who cares who won or who lost? Uh, as adults, we, we focus more on who won and who lost, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that sports are bad or sports are evil. Uh, here's a differentiation, and this is important. If you're taking notes, write this down. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, this is what Paul encourages us, encourages us to do. Run the, the race to win. He tells us to run the race to, to win. This spiritual life, he says, you give it your best. You give it your all. Don't run the race and just give up and not care. Run the race with everything you've got. But here is the difference between that and what we're talking about. That's doing your best as compared to wanting everyone to know that you're the best. That's pride. That's what we're talking about here. And so our final verse, uh, verse five, brings us to our final point. We've talked about how we have to come to Christ first, be wrapped in his arms. Second, how we have to become like little children in their humbleness. And lastly, we're going to see welcome, our point welcome. We're going to see what that means. Let's read verse 5. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. What does that mean? Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Welcome, that, that word in Greek means receive, accept. What God is saying here is, if you accept a little child like this in my name, you accept me. By doing this, by, by receiving uh, this, this lowly person, I mean, kids back in that day were, were looked at pretty close to the same thing as property, all right? They just, they had no importance in the mind of adults. That was everything people were trying to aspire to, is become an adult, become an adult, become an adult so you can uh, fish and, and reason with philosophy and all these things, right? Uh, kids, it was like, you're nobody until you're a certain age. Some of that still sticks around even today. But here's what God is saying here. He's saying, do you accept who I accept? And if you accept who I accept, you're accepting me. He goes on in Luke and says, if you accept me, you're accepting the one who sent me. It's that simple, right? It's like a relationship, you know? If, you, if you're with someone and you don't like their friends, well, either they have to change or it's not gonna work out. If they're like, no, I'm gonna hang out with my friends all the time. These are, these are my people, right? Well, God never changes, and he's the one who picks his friends, and he's picked the humble of heart who come to him. That's the only way anyone can come to him. And if you have a problem with that, then you need God to change your heart. You need to become humble like a little child and you need to welcome who God welcomes. See, we tend to always think that uh, we have to be the best to be recognized, but God offers that to us in his love. He, just, he gives that. He says, whoever, whosoever will, come to me. It's like, I'll give you rest. Uh, ask me to forgive your sins. I'll forgive your sins. Uh, you'll, you'll become my child. I'll put my arms around you. But pride says this. Pride says, no, this is the winner's circle, and you don't belong here. 
That's what pride says. And that's what the Pharisees struggled and struggled and struggled with time and time again. And Christ was constantly rebuking them and correcting them and telling them, you're not even, you're not even part of me. You don't accept who I accept. You even come to me. Because you would have realized I would have accepted you in your sins. And I would have paid for them. It's even hard for the disciples to understand this. It's hard for the disciples to understand that kids were important to God. Uh, that, that they should be accepted the same as an adult. They're people. It's hard for them to understand that the Gentiles, anyone who wasn't a Jew, was accepted by God. That whosoever, which is used in the last two verses, whoever, whoever, whosoever, that means anyone who comes to God humbly and acknowledges him. And, and in that humility, it says humble yourself. He humbles him. Uh, he will save and he will accept as a child. And so David Guzik points this out, and this is where we'll close. Why is it that he says, if you accept this little child, you accept me? And this whole question started with, uh, who's the greatest of us, God? And the, the word that's used three times, the phrase that's used three times in five verses is, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, not just heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Why is it called a kingdom? Because there's a king. And he's sitting there with them. And they're asking him, who's the greatest? <laughs> right? So this is what he says. He explains this whole thing. He shows him the child and says, if you receive him, you receive me. Because that king, and we have this, Philippians 2, 6 through 7, this is what that king did. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing brought himself low, and took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The reason why Jesus chose a child to demonstrate the nature of humbleness because that's demonstrating his nature. That's the savior we have. That's the king we have. He is a humble king. Doesn't mean weak. Doesn't mean he can't be bold, but he's humble. He is humble like that child. And he says, if you're gonna railroad that child, you're railroading me. If you're not impressed with that child, you're not impressed with me. I must not be a good enough savior for you. You know, I rode into town on a donkey. You know, they're expecting him to come on a horse. It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, you know, they thought he was gonna come and conquer. He came and died. He conquered death. He paid the price for our sins, but it's kind of embarrassing. Our king was naked on the cross for our sins. If you accept this child, he says, you're accepting me. James 1.21 says this. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept, receive, welcome the word planted in you, which can save you. When you accept Christ, you accept his word. You accept all of him. It's that one part you reject. You accept him for who he is. You give him the proper place he deserves. And here's the final questions. Do you accept Christ for who he is? It's different than just knowing about him. Do you accept him for who he is? All of him, not some of him. And do you accept who he accepts? Anyone who comes, anyone who comes to him humbly. Will you humble yourself like a child is humble? Will you go to the arms of Christ, abide in him, and find your rest and strength in him? 
even when the world's looking at you? Will you acknowledge him as the true king of heaven? Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you, Lord, and it's just this is such a check for all of us, God. We know who you are. We see you. You're the one true king of heaven. This is incredible that you would love us. It's so confusing for some to, because to, it's so unlike a king to deny himself. But Lord, you are the true king of heaven. You are God himself in a human body. And you correct us so gently at times, Lord, but we need correction, God. Lord, would you correct us? Lord, give us humble hearts like a child. Help us just to run to you and just accept your embrace and just receive our rest and our peace and our comfort from you. Lord, help us to accept and welcome those who you accept. Because you said, anyone who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You say in John 1, 12, to all who received him, to them, they became the right to become the children of God. Thank you, Lord God. Amen. You know, I think of that little child, and that little child had failings. That little child uh, was a sinner. As the Bible said, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. That child went to Jesus, and that's what we need to do. And those of us who have come to Christ just accepted him for who he is, we've become children of God. So rest, beloved church, rest in the Lord today. Remember who your heavenly father is. Remember of the love he had sending his son for you. And tell others about the humbleness of our God and our father. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you again so much for all of these gathered here, Lord. You have open arms, as that song says. You have open arms, wide open, anyone and whosoever will. God, we pray that you would be with us this week as we shine your light to others, Lord. As we look at the faces of others, Lord, help us to remember it's you that they're seeing because your arms are wrapped around us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.